0: Okay, thank you, worship team. Let's up with the word of God, please, to Acts chapter 23, verse 12. Acts 23, verse 12. Somebody once said that things are not always what they seem. And I think what that means is uh, we often misunderstand what is happening around us and in us and or we often misinterpret what's happening in us and around us, and that applies to everybody. I mean, Christians and atheists, rich and poor, black and white, Buddhists and Baptists, we, we all tend to uh, miss or misunderstand a lot of what's going around us, and because of that tendency, uh, we tend to want simple, specific answers to explain the things that are happening around us, especially things we can't control very well, or things that are very painful for us. And so there's a tendency, and this is true for Christians as much as non-Christians, to kind of to latch on to conspiracy theories, to explain away things we don't like that are happening around us. And uh, one definition of conspiracy theory is uh, to insist that specific events and circumstances have been caused as a result of some kind of secret Plan or secret plot, uh, usually by evil and powerful conspirators. And as I said, the Christian community buys into a lot of this stuff, uh, even though most of it's not true at all. And a couple of easy examples I've talked about over the years is I can remember about 30 years ago, Seth, when uh, they put the uniform product code, uh, and it was kind of weird when you're used to going to. The, to uh, uh, the grocery store and you had a cash register and everything was individually marked and so you, the cashier would pick up the green bean can and 78 cents and they'd type 78 cents in there and they'd get a couple of apples and they'd weigh it and calculate it and all that. So suddenly everything's got a computer code on it, including the fruit. And I can remember in the aftermath of that happening all over the country, and, and by the way, what was the reason for that? A, technology technology. B, it simplified and supposed to have sped up the checking out procedure. Plus, it allows the managers to know exactly what their inventory is. So there's all kinds of benefits to this. But because sometimes Christian conspiracy theorists are behind the curve, I can remember people like Hal Lindsey warning Christians and calling for a boycott of all the stores that had those kind of barcodes on their products because this was part of a satanic conspiracy to set up the stage for the Antichrist. Now, hey, guess what? The Antichrist is going to have state, state of the state-of-the-art everything, state-of-the-art of everything. He's going to have the best phone. He's going to have the best airplane. He's going to have the best air conditioners, probably the best pillowcases. That doesn't make pillowcases evil, or airplanes evil, or technology evil. So I've used that a lot over the years. Uh, don't overreact to some of the stuff our uh, more visible Christian leaders say to us sometimes. Uh here's one I came up uh, here's a conspiracy theory I came up with all by myself. Uh back in late 1978 when Pope John Paul II of Poland became the first pope and this was the first non-Italian pope in like 300 years and this was in the middle of the Cold War and so he's from Poland and the Russians had controlled Poland since World War II. It was very much a center of the Warsaw Pact, Poland. I was convinced, nobody else told me this. I figured this out on my own. I was convinced, Tom, the fix was in. I mean, the College of Cardinals had got together with the Kremlin and were all going down the tubes because the Roman Catholic Church and worldwide communism has joined hands. And I just knew this Pope was going to lead to all kinds of horrible things. And in fact, he was just the opposite. I tend to think, People like Ronald Reagan were very responsible for the Russians losing the Cold War, but Pope John Paul II was a great assistant in that uh, quest because he went back to Poland and said, Hey, the Russians don't own you, God does. You're not responsible to the commies, you're responsible to God. And uh, he was very much a force against Soviet tyranny. And when the wall came down in 89, uh, you can thank uh, the providence of God, but also This guy, who I thought was right at the center of the satanic conspiracy to make communism the uh, master of planet Earth. So, you know, as compelling as both of those conspiracy theories that uh, Satan had convinced Walmart to put universal product codes, uniform product codes on their apples, and as compelling as the idea that John Paul II was an agent of the Kremlin, as compelling as that might have sounded, some of us at the time They were totally untrue. Those conspiracy theories were not true at all. But today, in Acts chapter 23, we're going to find out that some conspiracy theories are actually true. Uh, Just because we're paranoid doesn't mean we don't have real enemies. And when we deal with forces beyond our control trying to do bad things to us, rather than either trusting or obeying, we got to do both. we got to rest and respond. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage this morning. But before we dive into that uh, portion of the Word of God, let's pray we'll be teachable (coughs) to God's Word, and also let's pray for uh, those who serve and protect us. Uh, And uh, Tom, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you? Thank you. Um, Yeah, we're going to look at uh, a real, true conspiracy today in the book of Acts, but uh, just To kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek make fun of the uh, ridiculousness of most conspiracy theories you're going to hear floating around, I want to give you uh, top three facts that prove one conspiracy theory, and I'll let you try to figure out what the conspiracy theory is, but just the first part of it uh, affirms that a secret group of chemists, and I don't know if Jack Smith and Dale Corbin are involved in this group or not, could be. A secret group of chemists are responsible for a fluid that corrupts and kills people. And let me give you three lines of evidence that clearly leads to that conclusion. First, all convicted criminals have drunk water at some time in their lives. So keep keep that in mind, because that's important. After a five-year study uh, involving billions of dollars of federal funds, OU scientists have proven the number one cause of drowning worldwide, is water. And, uh, so keep that in mind. Because that's important if you want to understand what's really going on. And finally, uh, people of all ages, races, and socioeconomic status who drink water will eventually die. And therefore, <laughs> based on those clear, undeniable facts, my friends, my fellow Americans, I insist that a secret group of chemists responsible for a fluid that corrupts and kills people, and that fluid is water. Yeah, you look back at some of these conspiracy theories we've believed, and you can see how crazy they are. But some conspiracy theories are true, and we're going to look at a real, living, murderous conspiracy theory today as we study our passage in Acts 23. And it breaks down into three parts. First, we see a real conspiracy To murder Paul is described in verses 12-15. through We're going to see rather than resting that God would take care of him. He believes that, but he also acts decisively, Hannah, to defuse and to deal with the conspiracy. And then we're going to see some honorable but unbelieving soldiers. There is such a thing as human virtue. Human virtue cannot save you, but every human being has the image of God deep within his or her reality it has been marred by the fall, but not eradicated. And real people that don't know the Lord can do some really amazing things. And it's all because of the image of God within them. And there's no evidence any of these soldiers come to faith, although we might find a few in heaven. But honorable soldiers, for the most part, are not Christians. Do what it takes to secure Paul's life against this very real conspiracy. Let's read uh, verses 12 through 15 for some context. Go to verse 10. And let me just summarize the context this way. We're in Jerusalem, 57 AD, and after surviving a riot outside the temple that tried to kill him, and a second riot inside the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, where two different groups of thinkers tried to rip Paul to shreds. Roman soldiers trying to figure out how to legally process this mess have taken Paul into protective custody. And so, with that in mind, let's read this, verse 10. And as a great dissension within the Sanhedrin chambers, the Jewish Supreme Court was developing about Paul, the commander, the Roman commander, who had him under protective custody and had brought him to the Sanhedrin, hopefully to settle the issues involved causing the initial riot, the commander, we're going to call him the colonel, the colonel, the Roman colonel was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by these old religious guys that kind of ran Judaism and ordered the Roman troops go down and take Paul away from them by force so he wouldn't be killed and to bring him back to the barracks, the Roman barracks there that actually abutted the uh, Jewish temple. But on the night immediately following this uh, interesting turn of events in the Sanhedrin, The Lord stood at Paul's side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause here in Jerusalem, you must also witness at Rome. Now, there are times we all need encouragement. I've never had the Lord appear to me and and encourage me exactly like that, but he encourages us other ways. But at this point, Jan, Paul knows he's going to Rome. I mean, if Jesus appears to you and says, you're going to Rome, guess what? You're going to Rome. And yet, this doesn't, uh, disconnect Paul grace from having to continue to trust and obey, to rest and to respond to things that come up. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews, meaning the Jewish faction that was uh, virulently against Paul and wanted to see him go down, formed a conspiracy. Look at that, Seth. Some conspiracies are true. And bound themselves under an oath, and the Greek says curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Uh, how long do you want to go without eating or drinking? A uh, few hours? day? Uh, these guys are, are going to take Paul out even if they have to die doing it. Uh, like in a time frame, you can understand. Like today. Sooner the better. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. Uh, but they realized they've got means, and motive, but they have no opportunity because the Romans are uh, holding Paul in protective custody. So, uh, verse 14 says, they, the plotters, the conspirators that want to kill Paul today, came to the chief priest and the elders, the Sanhedrins who ran uh, the, the Sadducees, I should say, who ran the Sanhedrin, and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we've killed Paul. Now, therefore, since we can't get to him in the Roman barracks, I want you and the council to notify the colonel to bring him down for another hearing, like we had yesterday where he had to kind of rescue Paul from you Jewish guys, you Jewish religious guys. But bring him down. Say you want him to come down for another hearing so you can sort it out, as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, a little calmer interaction. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near this place, as they transport him from the Antonia fortress down to the Sanhedrin assembly place, we'll kill him. No problem. Be glad to do it. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, real places and real events and, and all that good stuff. And we looked at the uh, schematic of the uh, first century temple, and this is, you know, the uh, Temple Mount, Temple Platform, as it's called, and. The Antonia Fortress was this structure that the Romans had built on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount so they could watch out for riots and keep the peace. And when Paul was kind of forced out of the temple and roughed up by the mob, the Romans took him and put him up a staircase here and took him into the Antonia Fortress. So that's where he is now. But we saw that when uh, the Romans, after initially interacting with him and deciding that they wanted to... Huh, Yeah, there you go. That they wanted to take him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin actually met right here in an office, a big uh, conference room adjoining the temple itself. So uh, right now, Paul's up there somewhere. These forty compl- conspirators want to kill him. They can't get to him up there, so they say, "Hey, why don't you call another meeting and say you wanted to process Paul's issues?" And as he's being transported from up there, maybe it's me. That's not, man, that's crazy. This is a different one. <laughs> anyway, as they transform him from up there, <laughs> total error, uh they're saying, we'll take him out, even if we have to get killed doing it. So uh, now they've got motive, means, and opportunity. At least that's the idea. So you've got a mortal plot here. This is a real deal conspiracy. They've got 40 people who are willing to die themselves To kill Paul. And I've heard Secret Service agents say, you know, if you have somebody who's willing to die themselves to take somebody else out, it's almost impossible to stop them in some situations. So this is a mortal situation. There's no fun and games here. So that's an inside look at the real conspiracy. Now let's look at how Paul acts decisively against the conspiracy. And this is some interesting inside baseball stuff we don't typically think about. Did you know Paul had a sister? And a nephew? Well, look what happens here. But, hard to keep a secret in Jerusalem. Harder to keep a secret in Duncan, just so you'll know. But, uh, the son of Paul's sister, that would be his nephew, heard of their ambush. And we don't know anything about the sister and the nephew beyond the fact that they're mentioned here. Uh, you have to wonder, we know that Paul, probably at age 12, he and his family came to Jerusalem. He was well connected in Jerusalem. Obviously his sister and some of his extended family were still in and around Jerusalem, right, Radina? So they happen to be there. Uh, if they're not believers, maybe they're high enough in the aristocracy that uh, they interact with people that uh, are powerful in Jewish religious circles. That's very possible. And uh, maybe a young boy like this who's probably 10 or 12 years old might have been in a living room uh, the night before when they were first starting to talk about the plot. If these people are believers, maybe again they've got some enough social situations that the the, the young boys ever able overhear this. But anyway, uh, a young boy who's probably only ten or twelve years old, who in fact is Paul's nephew, had heard about the ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now Paul's under protective custody custody as a Roman citizen, especially after the confusion early on. He's be, being given you know, a lot of creature comforts, and that would have been consistent with the way they processed Roman citizens, and there weren't many people who had that status in that first century, especially this far outside of Rome itself. So he's able to receive visitors, including nephews, like that. which is no problem there. Uh, So Paul called one of the centurions to him, to himself, uh, one of the master sergeants, and said, Lead this young man to the commander, to the colonel, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the, the to the colonel and said, Paul the prisoner, you know, the Roman citizen who we've had some issues with and we're still trying to process, uh, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you, and he has something to tell you. So the commander very wisely took uh, the young man by the hand. So this isn't a 25-year-old man. This would have been a 10- or 12-year-old kid, maybe younger. And stepping aside, just... The colonel and the little boy said, "What do you, what do you want to tell me, son? So you got to give this guy some kudos for being honorable and uh, sensitive to little kids. Uh, and that's what you got to do. You get down their level and you talk to them. And most of the time, they'll talk back. And sometimes I pump them for information just about their parents, just so you'll know why is Pastor Brad so friendly with all the kids. I'm trying to find out what's really happening at your house. That's why. That's another conspiracy theory. That's not really true necessarily." Uh, and he said the Jews the Jewish zealots against Paul the ones that caused the riot the ones that kind of control uh, the leading faction of the sanhedrin even have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council to, for another meeting as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him uh, so don't listen to them for there're more than 40 of them lying in wait for him for Paul who have bound themselves under a not to eat or drink until they kill, murder, slay Paul. And now they're ready and just waiting for the promise from you to take Paul down to another hearing to the Sanhedrin. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, don't tell anybody you told us. Because now we're going to respond to that. Uh, Several commentators point out that Paul knew for a fact from the express promise of the Lord Jesus personally, in verse 11, Russell that Paul's going to Rome to witness to the about the gospel. And so it would have been easy uh, for a super spiritual type of person to get this word from the nephew and say, Boy, thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate you telling me that. But I'm trusting the Lord's going to get me to, to Rome. And in fact, he's told me he is. And so just let's just pray about it and everything will be fine. You know what? There are some situations you're in, you can't do anything but pray. But praying is doing something. But a lot of our situations, there are things we can do. We, we cause or aggravate most of our own problems. I know I do, for sure. And so there's almost always some things we can do, uh, including prayer. And it's not a matter of trusting or obeying, resting or responding. It's a matter of doing both in balance. Now, you know, James tells us, if you need wisdom, ask of God and he'll give you wisdom. And we always think, well, if I need wisdom and how to get this job, or what stock to buy, or what car to buy, or what doctor to go to. God's going to give me an answer my, whisper in my ear. I think he'll give you appropriate guidance, uh, which is one reason he gives you a phone with the internet on it, so you can Google it, you know. Uh, actually, today's thing. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of times we're expecting uh, uh, James 1, uh, that means when you need wisdom, ask God who give you wisdom on everything. I think the kind of wisdom he tends to give us is, how much in this situation should I do? What's appropriate for me to do? And what do I want to totally trust in the, the Lord to do? I think having wisdom to know exactly where that balance point is, is the kind of thing that we're actually being promised there in that statement that we all at times use cavalierly that means every little thing. You know, should I wear my uh, light tie today or my dark tie? Lord, I'm waiting, you know. I think he allows us to make those kind of choices on our own as long as there's nothing. You know, uh, blasphemous on the tie. I think I've, you know, and I'm, I'm colorblind, so you never know what I'm going to wear. But somebody told me this will match today, so it was good. Uh, a couple years ago, when Amanda, when, when, uh, Matt was still deployed, and when Amanda graduated from Cameron University, uh, and boy, when the weather's nice over there, it is a beautiful service, and Sonia was there, and several of us were there to watch Amanda graduate. And, uh, of course, I got there late, so I, but I, I had wore my dark suit and I got my yellow tie. This Cameron is yellow and black, and so I had my yellow tie. And Debbie was out of town because her mother was very ill. And I remember looking myself in the mirror and said, "I don't usually look this good, but I am looking good. <laughs> I'm looking good today, yeah." So let's go over there and do this thing. So I went to the graduation and uh, enjoyed it. It was a, it was beautiful, beautiful ceremony. And uh, I'm a part-time teacher over there now, so I know a couple of the other teachers. And I noticed when it was over, but when we were trying to find Amanda so we could congratulate her, several of my colleagues were kind of looking at me funny. And I thought, what's the problem? I must have, maybe I didn't fill out some paperwork right here at the end of the semester. And then when I bumped into Sonia, she pointed out, you know, my yellow tie I wore in honor of Cameron wasn't yellow. What, what color was it? Orange. It was OSU orange, which normally I'm happy. I'm happy to wear, but kind of at Cameron, they don't like the faculty to be wearing OU stuff or OSU stuff, especially not at the graduation. So uh, this is maybe I should claim James one for my tie selections more often because I needed extra help that time. I mean, Debbie wasn't there to save it. So, uh, and it's funny because what? Right. Shortly after that, Sonia, you bought me a present, didn't you? Would you buy me? Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to go this week to graduation, although I've got a couple of students I know that are graduating. So I'd be tempted to go, but I probably probably won't. But if I do, I think I'll have the right color tie this time. At least that's the that's the idea. Okay. So some conspiracy theories were actually true, and we see. A real conspiracy described in verses 12 to 15. And then we see when Paul finds out about it, rather than just sitting there and trusting it's all going to work out, he continues to do that and rests in God. But he also asks his nephew to work it up the chain of command. So hopefully, and he's, Paul doesn't know if the Roman commander is going to do anything anyway. He may be happy to see Paul go, you know. I think we know a little bit better based on his character already, but he just bumps up the chain of command and he does what a responsible person would do and now we're going to see as I say an interesting example of what I call human virtue and I believe in the depravity of man I don't think we're able to do anything to save ourselves and uh, when you think of the grace of God it's amazing because of our guilt and our inability but it's also true that all of us have the image of God uh, that starts at the moment of conception. That little baby and the mommy isn't a potential human being, it's a human being with great potential, and that means people with colors that aren't your favorite, or with physical disabilities, or handicaps, or issues, or challenges, or people who are uh, late middle age, holding on to middle age with great intensity, or losing his good looks, and his eyesight, his hearing, and uh doesn't have half of James's talents, but does the best I can with what little paints I've got. I'm doing the best I can here, folks. Uh, you need to love people like me, too, you know, just so you'll know. So I look at verse 23 through 35. Human virtue at work. These soldiers do what it takes to make sure it works out. They've got a job to do to secure this Roman citizen. They're just black going to do it. Verse 23. Uh, and he called to him, the, the colonel, the Roman colonel, I called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night. We're leaving at 9 p.m. tonight. We're, we're going to have shock and awe. We're going to have overwhelming force. We're going to get out of town before this is an issue. We're going to wait for it to get dark and get out of here. And this Roman citizen is going to be far away from Jerusalem before these people can possibly get their hands on him under any circumstances. We're not going to let that happen. Uh He says, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. That's the Roman capital, where the Roman governor can process whatever legalities Paul has to deal with, and they're still trying to figure out why the riot started. And also, that that seemed like a lot. 200 Roman soldiers against 40 Jewish zealots, you got a well of a good, you know, uh, ratio there. But this guy's gonna make sure you got more than enough. When you're gonna do something like that, have more than enough. to eliminate the possibility of any breakdowns. Uh, also, let's have 70 horsemen, and then let's add 200 spearmen. So you got 470 Roman soldiers to protect one Roman citizen. Uh, back then, the Roman Empire went out of their way to take care of their citizens. Uh, whether it's Obama or Bush... In the last 20, 30 years, the U.S. government doesn't always do a lot of stuff it could probably do to take care of citizens when they're out of the country. It's a little bit scary, depending on what country it is and what negotiations they're doing. Sometimes they do a lot. Sometimes it's like, don't have your passport? Sorry, you know. Um, come back in six months. We'll try to process it for you. So, but these people took it seriously. Of course, they didn't have, uh, instant messaging, so they kind of have to be decisive and make decisions, even if they're bureaucrats or in a bureaucracy. Uh they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on, so we know Paul could ride a horse, or at least he learned how to ride a horse tonight, you know. Uh put him on a horse. So Za I know Zane's a very good horseman, and I've uh I've ridden a horse maybe a couple of times as a kid with a lot of help. So that's another thing I don't want to do in <laughs> my old age. I mean they're they're big. Have you seen a horse lately? Like that big, man. Uh they are. Uh Jeff Tidwell used to say, a horse will be nice to you for 15 years to get one good chance to kick you. And he was like the world's greatest veterinarian. If you don't believe it, ask him. He'll tell you. But, uh, yeah, provide mounts for, put Paul on and to bring him safely to Felix, the Roman governor. Uh, the colonel knows all the people above him at Rome are going to care about is you had a Roman citizen in your custody. Did you take care of him? You know, was he able to, have due process of law. And that's all that the, his higher-ups care about, and he's flat going to take care of it. This is really cool here, verse 25 and following. And so he, the colonel, the commander, we've been reading about for two weeks now, wrote a letter, an epistle, just a fancy word for a letter, Hannah, wrote a letter to his governor, to his, uh, his high civilian authority figure uh, in Caesarea, And he writes it this way. This is a letter, like a letter by Paul, but it's not inspired. But this is an inspired summary of the letter. Luke's writing, Claudius Lysias, that's the colonel's name, to writing this letter to the most excellent governor, Felix. Now, Felix wasn't an excellent governor, but today we talk about the Honorable Tom Cole or the Honorable whomever our senator or congressperson is, and we may not even think they're honorable, but we, we say that as a title of respect for the office. Uh, Felix was not a nice person, but this is the way you address formal correspondence. You actually had some civility. You may not even respect people, but you respect the office. You respected law bigger than uh, people's personalities. Uh, when this man, so this is going to go with Paul, and when the soldiers arrive, they're going to hand this letter to Felix or, his assistant say, this is what the deal is. When this man, Paul, the guy we just bring in from Jerusalem, was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, he's thinking about the riot outside the temple, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a citizen. Now, by the way, <laughs> when bureaucrats write out forms about things they've done they will tend to spin everything they did in the best possible light. Now, if you remember the story, uh, this isn't exactly what happened. Uh, he, The the Roman uh, commander saw the riot, went down to stop the riot, because that's his job. uh was going to take Paul up, and Paul asked to speak to him. The riot started again. So the commander takes him up and says, let's prepare him for questioning by giving him 39 lashes. And it was only when Paul said, hey, you know, I'm a Roman citizen, that he had to pull that off. So, uh, you know, Claudius Lysias is not going to let little details keep this letter from, you know, making him look like a hero, right? So when this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, because he was a Roman citizen, of course I saved him. You know, no questions asked. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, and you know that. But this is, hey, is everything in the Bible true? No, this really isn't true here. Uh, He wasn't, everything in the Bible that's affirmed is true, okay? Luke is writing this and saying, in this letter, this guy affirms he did B, but we all know he did A. See, everything the Bible affirms is true, not everything the Bible is true. When it says, uh, you know, uh, thou shalt not surely die, is that true? No. As soon as they eat the apple, you know they die spiritually. So, but that's an accurately recorded lie in the Bible. This is an accurately recorded, inherently recorded. Uh, let's not call it a lie. That's such a terrible term. You know, let's just say embellishment of the truth. Okay, something like that. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which the the, the mob was accusing him, I brought him down to their council to the Sanhedrin. Now he did do that. Uh, and I found him to be accursed over questions about their law, about their religion kind of thing, but under no accusation deserving death and imprisonment under Roman jurisprudence, for sure. Uh, but when I was informed there would be a plot against the man, if I let him be further processed by the Jewish court, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you, and we're going to see that next week. They actually do come five days later, which is interesting because Ananias, the high priest, would normally never leave Jerusalem and would not set foot in the pagan city of Caesarea. But he hates Paul so much. If there's any chance they can, you know, keep the heat on him? That's what they're going to do. So that's pretty interesting. You know, we often when we read Paul's letters or the letters in the New Testament, we say, "Hey, it says Paul." Uh, to the church in Ephesus, we're saying that means Paul's the human author. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. Back then, they identified themselves at the get-go. We tend to, David writes to me an email. Uh, he'll say, Brad, yada, 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 your friend David. He doesn't identify himself to the end. But in the first century, the writers identified themselves straight up. So he identifies himself, kind of spins what happened there. And you can understand, you know, why he would do that. And that's, that's okay. Uh, not okay, but uh, that's what happened. And again, that's a good lesson. The Bible does affirm lies inherently. So not everything in the Bible is is true, but it's correctly uh, recorded. And by the way, you know, I'm calling this guy the colonel. So Stephanie, I know you wouldn't do this. Uh, Shiloh, you might. When you hear the word the colonel, you may think of somebody like that. But we're thinking about somebody more like that. Okay, so don't let that distract you. And um, since I kind of... I'm I, it's Really, Jen got the ball rolling, but since I'm the one that uh, kind of decided on the date of the CPR training, uh, I know there's some irony in this, but usually when we have a, a quick uh, lunch before we have a meeting, we have pizza, and I'm the only person in the world that doesn't like pizza, so I need to watch everybody else eat pizza, which doesn't bother me, by the way. I don't care. I'm used to watching other people eat pizza I've done it my whole life, but I thought, and I know it's ironic to have a CPR meeting about heart issues preceded preceded by a meal of slimy, greasy, Kentucky Fried Chicken. But since I'm the one that was in charge of the logistics for that, this guy, not in person, but his product, will be here for our quick lunch right before we learn how to save people from heart attacks. And I know that's kind of, you know, not perfect and stuff, but... If you don't like it, it's my fault, okay? Like everything else around here. If it doesn't work, it's gotta be the professional Christian's fault, right? And it usually is. Uh, verse, no conspiracy there. Verse 31. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul, all 470 of them, by night to Antipatris. Now Antipatris was a city built by Herod the Great. He built a lot of stuff. Sometimes it starts working again. Okay. we got it working again. It had a switch. <laughs> See, it's always my fault. It really is always my fault. I mean, okay. Uh, they're in Jerusalem, and they're gonna go to Caesarea, which is uh, the Roman capital, so that Felix can process Paul's legal case. But to get him out of town, uh, and it was too far to go, uh, in one, one trip without a stop, They go to Antipatris, was built by Herod the Great, but it became kind of a Roman garrison, kind of a depot for Roman soldiers and supplies and stuff. So at that point, they're 30 miles away, and there's no way the bad guys can easily get to Paul. So Paul is now out of harm's way. And so that's what's happening there. So look back at verse 31. So the soldiers in accordance with the orders of the colonel, taking the letter we just read for the governor, took Paul, got him out of town by night, Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him to take Paul on horseback to Caesarea, they, the rest of the guys, went back to the barracks. They're not needed anymore to protect Paul. He's got more than enough protection and distance. He's not in any imminent threat. When he had come to Caesarea, the Roman capital, and delivered the letter of the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So when he read it, the governor, uh, he asked what province Paul was from to make sure he had jurisprudence in this issue. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, Felix says to Paul, I will give you a legal hearing, that is, after your accusers arrive also, uh, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. And we'll stop there today, but notice the next verse. In the new chapter 24, after five days, the high priest Ananias, who normally would never get anywhere near Caesarea because it had spiritual cooties, they believed in the cootie theory of spirituality, uh, came down with some elders and an attorney, so you always have to have an attorney for these things, and brought charges against uh, uh, Paul to the governor. So the story is going to go on. We're in the midst of a longer story now as we're in this last phase of the book of Acts. Paul's on his way to Rome come hook. I'm crook. But here's what I want to leave with you today. Uh, I call this Living in a Fallen World 101. Not everybody has your best interests at heart. And this is why James and Shauna and Pastor Brad try to tell all you teenagers, okay, Hannah, your your mom may not always be cool, and she may not even always be right. She's not perfect, but she's always going to have your best interest at heart. Okay, Shauna and James and Pastor Brad we're not always going to be cool. Now, Sean is always going to be tr- cool. James is going to be pretty cool. I'm never going to be cool. Okay? So just so you have realistic expectations. Are you good with... Is that right? Yeah, okay. I told you, right? So I'm not going to be cool. They're going to be kind of cool. but And sometimes we'll even be wrong. We're not perfect. But we're always going to have your best interests at heart. Okay? So... Not everybody does that. Nobody has that best interest at heart. And there there are real people and real evil out there that want to mess you, wreck you spiritually in every other way they can. But not all conspiracy theories are false. And a lot of people get these high-polluting, super-complicated conspiracy theories that just don't line up with reality, and then suddenly they lose their credibility. So I would say this, in the face of real evil... Directed toward all of us and increasingly toward our faith in the culture we're living in right now. Um, some sometimes I think we get just demoralized, immobilized because we think there's everybody's conspiring against us Christians, and it seems like that. And so you know we kind of get immobilized because of, uh, the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? That sound familiar? That's Psalm 11. There's a lot we can do. Uh, on the other hand. Uh, we might think, well, I'm not going to panic. I'm going to trust God, but there's really nothing I can do against all these sinister forces I don't know about, so I'll just rest in God I won't do anything. Uh, you know, a disturbing fact to me is 320 million Americans, is every, it's estimated there are like 50 to 60 million evangelical Christians. At least 30 to 40 million of those people are in voting age. And every four years, less than half, sometimes only a third, vote this is insane okay I'm not going to ever tell you who to vote for from this pulpit I am going to teach you biblical principles and you don't have to know algebra or calculus in most cases to connect the dots uh, and sometimes it is lesser of evils but I think a lot of times people just say you know I know uh, we don't want to focus on politics we want to focus on the Lord but I think a lot of Christians just opt out of being involved in a body politic because, hey, God's in control. You know, uh, Paul has to deal with human authority figures like the Sanhedrin that don't like him. This is exactly why he writes something like Romans 13 in context. And in that case, telling the Roman Christians uh, that we, in general, we need to respect human government and respond with submission to human government that's just a general principle that's true uh, you might say well i don't like the human government i don't like i don't agree with the president i don 't agree with this this person that person the governor whomever uh, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, who was running the human em- uh, running the Roman em- empire at that point who was the emperor of the Roman Empire at that point? His name was Nero was he a born again evangelical Christian no. He was he was much worse than any American politician is even now. And that is possible. He was much worse than that. Uh, so that means anything the government tells us to do, we've got to do and believe now. He's not saying that. The principle is always submit to human authority until or unless it's a direct sin to obey human authority. And we know that because, among other places, uh, in similar terminology like Romans 13, in 1 Peter 2, you have the same kind of statement. Submit to those in authority over you, pray for those, pray for the king, pray for the emperor, pray for all these people. Uh, but the guy that writes that in 1 Peter 2, in Acts 4, when he's rounded up by the uh, government in uh, Jerusalem, says, hey, we can't stop telling people about Jesus. we got to obey God rather than man. The idea is always submit to human government and, you know, this happens at work. You know, sometimes people say, I can't respect my boss. He's got a girlfriend. He's messing around with the secretaries and all that. You know what? I think that's where you ask for wisdom. You can always get another job, but as long as you're working for Halliburton or for international widgets, uh, whether or not you respect the theology or the lifestyle of the people over you, as a Christian, you're supposed to kind of salute the uniform and do the best you can. Now, if you find out the widgets are going to, uh, you know, build uh, IEDs to kill American soldiers, at that point you call the FBI and you quit and you take as much info with you as possible so they can shut the operation down. But in general, uh, rather than seeing conspiracy theories as immobilizing us or forcing us just to wait to see what God does as if we can do nothing, I think we need to trust and obey rest, and respond. And Paul knows he's going to Rome, but when he finds out there's a conspiracy that if initiated has a whale of a shot to kill him, uh, he does the right thing. He acts responsibly and wisely to move it up the chain of command, and God works through some incredibly unusual sources, a bunch of pagan Roman soldiers, uh, to get him to the next step closer uh, to, uh, to Rome. So I would say, fill in the blank on this, just mentally, uh, believers like Tom Robertson or uh, Jenny Heath or Gerald Patton or Brad McCoy must rest in the providence of God. Don't panic, and personally, actively resist evil in and around us. Right? We got to do both, not either or. And I think if we do that, we're going to be a lot closer to where uh, Paul is here, uh, who said, "If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them." That would be the Lord Jesus. This isn't theology class. This is transforming truth. And then uh, one more thing. Uh, there's uh, Andy and Barney talking about conspiracy theories about the government. And then Andy looks at Barney and says, what if there is no conspiracy and our government really is that stupid? <laughs> let that word of prayer. let that word of prayer. Father, help us to Trust and obey, and I pray you'd give us the wisdom to know exactly what that looks like with whatever challenge or mountain we're climbing, uh, this week. Uh, help us never to despair. Help us never to just put it on automatic pilot, like there's, cause there's a lot, usually it's things we can do. And certainly prayer is something concrete we can do. But help us to have the wisdom to do what we can do to remedy evil in us around us but also to rest when we've done all we can do and all we can think to do to rest in your providence. Just like uh, uh, we heard such such a beautiful special music today talking about that kind of principle looking at from the from the shepherd's point of view. Uh, I know a lot of people in this room are dealing with challenges where they're trying to trust you and trying to figure out what all they can do to deal with the situation. And I pray you would uh, uh, give them Special clarity and special wisdom this week on how to walk wisely and righteously through that whole process and encourage them that you're going to be glorified in them as you, as they do that and you're going to teach them lessons and stretch them spiritually as they do that in that process. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.